The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. You know, there's a number of books that uh, come along in the Christian life and, and change your entire way of thinking. And those things are good. It's a gift of God, a gift of His grace, that teachers in the church can lift up a theme or an insight and so press it to our hearts that we're never the same again. And there's been a number of books like that in my life. Of course, I'm not speaking of the Bible here. That's in a whole different category. That lists us every day and speaks the blessings and promises and commands of God. But I'm just talking about those books written by Christians that strengthen us in the Christian life. And one of those books for me has been Randy Alcorn's book on heaven. And uh, it's, it's really been an incredible blessing to me because it's shown me, first of all, how much I underestimate my heavenly reward and the power of meditating on heaven, the heavenly life, uh, the joy that it gives you, the strength and the energy for Christian service just meditating on heaven. Brothers and sisters in Christ, it is not a guilty pleasure for us to think a lot about heaven. It's actually commanded. We should be thinking much about heaven. Alcorn, in the beginning of his book, was talking about somebody who was trying to swim across the English Channel and there was fog and the person failed in their attempt. And after being saved, pulled out, they said, I think I would have made it if I could have only seen the shore. And I just think there's such a lesson for us that we have to keep the shore in front of us every day. We're going to make it, friends. We're going to be there someday. We're going to see God face to face and we need to rejoice with a great joy. Now, what Alcorn's book, I think, did for me more than anything was to kind of blow away like a wispy cloud the idea that we're going to be sitting on wispy clouds and bored for eternity. That we're going to be strumming on these harps and we're going to be chanting songs that after the first hundred years aren't so exciting anymore. And uh, we're, we're going to be bored. And we're going to look around and all we're going to see is white everywhere. And we're going to long for color and just something under our feet other than this wispy cloud that we're sitting on all the time. And this vision of heaven is actually satanic because it's not true. We're actually going to be resurrected in physical bodies and we're going to be living in a physically resurrected world called the new heaven and new earth. And heaven's going to come down in the form of the new Jerusalem and God's throne is going to be there. And it's all going to be so very real. We're going to walk on, on resurrected feet on a resurrected earth and we're going to see glory and we're going to touch things and taste things and work and experience things that we can scarcely imagine. Well, all of that's wonderful. And it's, and it's glorious. And it's good, and it's good for us to meditate on these things. But you know something? In the end, the center of our joy in heaven will be worshiping and praising Almighty God. And that actually hasn't changed. I think what Alcorn's book did for me was to help me to remember again that it's impossible that that could be boring. It's just impossible that giving praise and honor and glory and worship to God could possibly be boring. He who created the heavens and the earth, who created the stars and all of their glory, and the sun and the moon, who created the physical world we live in now, even in its corrupted state, with all of its beauty and its variety, all the different kinds of birds and animals and plants, all of the things that we experience in the, in the immense variety of our physical lives here on earth, that comes from some place, friends. It comes from the mind of Almighty God. 
And it's going to be even better in the new heaven and new earth. There's going to be even more visibly uh, clear and powerful displays of the glory of God's thoughts and His character and His love for us and His goodness toward us in Christ than we can possibly imagine. And all we're going to want to do all the time is praise Him and give Him honor and glory. And you know something? That's what we are created to do. We don't do it well here on earth. Jonathan Edwards in a sermon entitled Praise the Chief Employment of of Heaven. And what he's saying there is, first of all, there's going to be employment in heaven. We're not going to be sitting around doing nothing. We're going to be busy in heaven. But the chief employment will be praising God. And he said the reason we don't do it now like we should is we don't really see God clearly now. We see Him through a glass darkly. But then we shall see face to face. And how rich will that be when at last we see how much He has loved us in Christ. The greatness of His mercy to us in Christ. How great it will be. Now we know from Scripture that this is why God created the heavens and the earth. For the praise of His glorious grace. And even more than that. We know from many places in Scripture, but I think especially in Ephesians chapter 1, that God has crafted the salvation plan. He has crafted redemptive history for the praise of His glorious grace. That we might worship Him for His grace to us in Christ Jesus. He says it three times in those verses. In Ephesians 1, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love, He predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ, in accordance with His pleasure and will, listen, to the praise of His glorious grace which He has freely given us in the one He loves. That's why He did it all. That's why He predestined us. That's why He is working out, it says later in that chapter, everything after the counsel of His will, in order that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, He says, might be for the praise of His glory. And you also were included in Christ, so that you also might be for the praise of His glorious grace. That's why He's done it all. And so, we are going to be worshiping God. We're going to be praising Him. We're going to be standing in awe as history itself is unfolded with, with, with a fresh vision of what God did in it, of His amazing grace to a variety of sinners. We're going to see who we really were and how gracious God was to us, how plentiful were His effusions of grace to cover us moment by moment in all of our weakness and our acts of rebellion. We're going to see in a, in a fresh way Just how much patience he showed to Saul of Tarsus, that blasphemer and that murderer. And Paul will be right along there, astonished and amazed at the grace of God shown to him in Christ. We're going to see God's mercy and his tenderness that he showed here in this world, in this in this in space and time, to those that were weak and frail and broken by sin patterns and habits and drunkenness and sexual immorality and all kinds of bad decisions, just how gracious he was to each one of them. And how much power he has extended to each one of us to protect us from the evil one. And all of his demonic intentions and his the powers and principalities that are against us. How much power he extended to us in Christ that we would make it through. We would know just kind of what kind of power held us through it all so that we would not drift away, turn away, or fall away from Christ. We will see it all. And that will be for the praise of His glory. That's the center of heaven, this throne of God's grace and the greatness of the praise that He deserves. But the second reason that God did it all is He just loves us and wants us to be happy. And the greatest thing He can give us 
is to give us himself. That we might see it. That we might experience him. That we might be joyful in him. That we might have experiences of pleasure and joy and satisfaction in him. That's the secondary reason. It's not first because man can't be first. God is first. That God is glorious and displayed as glorious. That's the highest reason for everything. But secondly, that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. And that we would be tasting it forever. And so to this end, Jesus prayed in John 17, 24. Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. I want them to see it, Father. I want them to experience it. I want them to know how much you love me and in me how much you love them. And I want you to see my I want them to see my glory. He prays for it. And to this end, Christ entered the world. To this end, he lived a sinless life. To this end, he shed his blood on the cross. He died in our place. To this end, he was raised from the dead. To this end, he sent forth his spirit to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth. That all of God's chosen people from every tribe and language and people and nation might be there and see his glory. And might enjoy it. And have a good time in his presence. And eat at his table. And be refreshed for all eternity. That's what he's doing. And now as we come to Isaiah 12, we come therefore to a psalm of praise. Right in the middle, the unfolding of this magnificent prophecy... We get these six verses of praise right in the middle of it. And it just seems so appropriate. To the praise of his glorious grace. And already in 11 chapters of Isaiah, we've seen just how much grace God had to show them and us. It's just been an unfolding, a river of sin among the the Jews and the Gentiles alike. Individuals and nations alike. And we've seen it. How in Isaiah 1, God expressed... His disgust at their religious system. This trampling of God's courts. All the animal sacrifice without any righteousness at all. Without any concern for the poor and the needy and the widow and the orphan. Without any concern of that. This machinery of of Jewish religiosity. It it made him sick. He didn't want any part of their prayers or or their worship. And how in chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 2, God speaks vigorously against their arrogance and their pride. Lifted up, everything high and lifted up, all the human arrogance will be cast down. And the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And all the idols will totally disappear, the idolatry of it. Isaiah 2. And then in Isaiah 3, we saw the wickedness of, of Israel's leaders. Their kings and their magistrates and their prophets and priests and all of their leaders and how they led Israel astray. How they confiscated the, the houses of the, of the poor and the needy. They used their positions of influence to dominate and crush God's people. And how evil they were and how they led Israel astray. And then in Isaiah 5, how God likened the Jews, the Jewish nation, to a, an orchard, a vineyard that was uh, cleared of stones and, and, and a wall put around it and the choicest vines planted in it. That's the Jews in the promised land and how God set up a watchtower and he watched out for them to protect them. And yet, despite all of that, it yielded only bad grapes. And how God's going to take away their protection, they're going to be trampled. And then it got very intensely personal in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah, in his calling, 
had a vision of the Lord seated on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. And above him there were seraphs crying aloud to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And Isaiah felt his own sinfulness crying out from within him. Woe is me, I'm ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. He feels his own wickedness, and how God dispatches an angel to atone for his sin. The sinfulness, even of that prophet, he the best of men, it seemed, the best perhaps of his generation, And he felt his own sinfulness within him. In Isaiah 7, how wicked king Ahaz, who had no interest in the things of God, and who was threatened by an invasion from Israel, the northern kingdom, and from Syria, he was terrified, terrified of dying, terrified of losing his kingdom. And so Isaiah the prophet goes from the Lord and hands him a blank check. Ask for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or the highest heights, anything you want, and God will display his power for you. And he throws it in God's face. And he makes an, he makes an alliance with Assyria of all people, of all nations, these wicked people, to deliver him from, uh, from Israel and Syria. The wickedness of this king. And then in Isaiah 8 through 10, the wickedness of Assyria itself and the Jews again displayed. And after all of that, Isaiah 11, a depiction of the coming reign of Messiah. A shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch bearing fruit. He's a king who reigns in righteousness and rules in justice. He loves righteousness and hates wickedness. And he's going to strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And the wolf will live with the lamb and the leopard lie down with the calf and the lion and the yearling together in a a picture of peace to the ends of the earth. A peaceful reign where righteousness is at the center. And you almost get the feeling like Isaiah says, how can it be that that a, a race, a human race as wicked as us, could get a king like that, reigning like that in righteousness. How can it be? Oh, praise you, Lord. I praise you and I give you thanks. I'm just going to take six verses here in the middle of it all, and I'm just going to praise you for that coming kingdom. I'm going to worship you and I'm going to give you praise and glory in Isaiah 12. And and I'm going to give you honor for what you're going to do, for your salvation workforce in Christ. Now, of course, he didn't know anything about chapter 12 or six verses or any of that. He just wrote under the inspiration of God. But we have the privilege to come along centuries later and join him in a celebration of God's grace. How much has that grace had to overcome in their lives? And how much in yours? But where sin abounds, my friends, grace abounds all the more. Grace wins. Praise his holy name. And so we come to a time of praise and of worship. And as we do, we recognize that this is a healing of the human soul. We don't naturally praise God, frankly. We naturally curse Him and hate Him. But we are being healed from the insanity of sin, the insanity of not praising God. We're being healed to sanity. It really is insane not to praise a God like this. And I don't just mean because He can destroy us in hell. I don't just mean that, that He's got that kind of power. I mean just because He's so glorious and beautiful and wonderful. Can't you see him? 
Well, we can't. Just through a glass darkly. Just reflected glory we see now. But you know what? The redeemed are going to be singing in heaven. It says this in, in Revelation 15, while history is still unfolding there. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the ages. Who will not fear you, O Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. It's almost a sense of amazement. How can they not worship you? Oh, I look forward to being healed. As Nebuchadnezzar was from his beast-like insanity, at last the Lord took that from him and he lifted up his eyes and he praised God, the Most High. And so we will do in heaven. So look at verses 1 and 2. It says there, In that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord has, is my strength and my song and he has become my salvation. Now that's your personal theme. For you individually, God is my salvation. The Hebrew here is singular. In that day, you singular will say, you individual, you individual sinner saved by grace, you're going to stand before him and you will say this. This is a word of prophecy spoken to individual persons whom God will save. And after that immense work of salvation is completed in your soul, you're going to stand in front of Jesus and you will say this. We're saved as individuals. We're personally called as individuals to the Savior. John 10 and verse 3. He calls his own sheep by name and they follow them, follow him. He gives them eternal life. The name is your individuality. It's who you are. He calls you by name. And so Paul says beautifully in Galatians 2.20, making it very intensely personal. I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, Paul's not there denying that he also died for a multitude greater than anyone could count from every tribe and language and people and nation. He's just saying this is also true. He died for me. For me personally. For me individually. And so Isaiah says to the individual sinner saved by grace, in that day you'll praise God. In what day? Well, whenever that phrase shows up in Isaiah, and it's many, many times, it refers to a future day of judgment, of wrath poured out, in that day, etc. But now here it's speaking of grace. So I look ahead to judgment day, when at last I, a sinner, am vindicated by the blood of Jesus and welcomed into eternity in his name. So in that day, I'm going to be thanking him for his salvation, because things are going to be very clear that day. <laughs> It can be very clear on Judgment Day that I was saved by grace and my works could not help me at all. So in that day, Judgment Day, and why? Because God's wrath has been satisfied. Look again at verse 1. I will praise you, O Lord, although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. God has a passionate emotional reaction to evil. He hates it, and he gets angry about it. He is a God, it says, who expresses his wrath every day. J.I. Packer, speaking of God's anger, of his wrath, said this in his book, Knowing God, It is not the capricious, arbitrary, bad-tempered, and conceited anger which pagans attribute to their gods, and it's not the sinful, resentful, malicious, infantile anger 
which we find among men. It is a function of that holiness which is expressed in the demands of God's moral law. Be holy because I am holy. Now, throughout these first uh, ten chapters, first ten chapters of Isaiah, we saw depicted again and again the wrath of God. Remember there was that phrase, yet for all of this, his anger is not turned away, his hand is still upraised. It says it again and again. For example, Isaiah 5.25, Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised and he strikes them down. The mountains shake. The dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. But now here in Isaiah 12, he says, I will praise you, O Lord. Although you were angry with me, your anger has turned away. And you have comforted me. Now what can turn away the wrath of God? What can turn away his wrath so that it's not on us anymore as individuals? Well, we come now to that doctrine called propitiation. The turning away of the wrath of God by the giving of a sacrifice. It is the foundation of our faith that God's wrath can turn away from us to a substitute. And the substitute can be our lightning rod. He can draw the wrath of God away from us so that we never have to experience it. And Jesus Christ is the one who made this verse come true. It is because of Jesus that the anger of God has turned away from me as an individual. God's not angry with me anymore. There's no wrath for me to experience. It's been removed. It's been absorbed. It's been propitiated. Jesus has stood in my place. He drank the cup of God's wrath on the cross. And God will never be angry with me because of sin again. Oh, how hard it is for us sinners to believe this. I dare say it's hard for you. I tell you it's hard for me. I mean, to really believe that God's anger has turned away. And he is now in a state of comforting us. Now, I'm not saying that God doesn't discipline us for sin. He does. But that's not wrath, friends. That's not anger. That's the loving, caring strokes of a father who knows that the biggest evil in our lives is sin and he wants to wean us from it, from our insane love of it. But the wrath is gone, my friends, if you're in Christ. It's gone. But are you in Christ? I see some unfamiliar faces here today, some guests. Praise God that you're here. I'm glad that God brought you. I don't know your spiritual state. Even if I knew you well, I wouldn't definitely know your spiritual state. Do you know that the wrath of God has been removed? Do you understand that Jesus is your substitute? Isaiah will say later in Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Friends, in paganism, man propitiates the gods by choosing a suitable sacrifice that will avert the gods' wrath. It's a, it's a work of man to find something big enough that will turn the gods' wrath away from that person. We can't do that. It's impossible for us to avert the wrath of God. It's something God must do for himself. And he has done it in Christ. J.I. Packer said that kind of pagan view of propitiation, it opens up a kind of a commercialism with God, a transactional approach. If I can find something good enough, I can pay for my sins this way. Well, you can't. 
It's something only God can do. And you can only receive it by faith, simply by trusting in the blood shed on the cross for you, in your place. So it says in Romans 3, All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by His grace, by the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. Listen, this is Romans 3.25, Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood, received by faith. Propitiation means that the wrath of God is averted by the giving of a blood sacrifice. That's the key to our faith. Have you received it? Are you standing forgiven now before the throne of God? And if not, I urge you to flee to Christ. I think about Luke's testimony as he was sitting there in the pew. Doug, I think that's where you're sitting right now. I praise God for your salvation, brother. But it could be that somewhere else in the sanctuary, you don't know whether you're under the wrath of God. You don't know. You came here today to just go to church, to hear a sermon. Flee to Christ. Look to Christ now, while there's still time. Because today is the day of salvation. Trust in Him. It's the only way that this verse will be fulfilled for you. But look what else it says. Verse 2. Surely God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. The Lord, the Lord is my strength and my song, and He has become my salvation. This is a profound concept here. God is not merely your Savior. You know, the one who rescues you from danger. The one who does that, He gets you out of danger. That's a Savior. He is your Savior. But He's more than that. He is your salvation. You say, what's the difference? Well, when you're saved out of danger, you get Him. He's what you get. He is heaven. I'm not saying that there's not going to be a new heaven and a new earth, but God's going to be woven all through it, and you'll know it. And you'll just see God in everything He's made, the glory of God everywhere. But He is your salvation. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is God. He is the gospel. He's what you get. He's the one who saves. He's the one who redeems, who calls, who sanctifies, who glorifies. And after all that, he's the reward you get. As God said to Abram in Genesis 15:1, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. I am your very great reward. And so it says in Revelation 22, 3 and 4, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His servants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. You get God. Now, J.I. Packer, uh, I'm sorry, John Piper, in a book, God is the Gospel, asks a very poignant question. Very powerful. Listen to this. This is John Piper in the book, God is the Gospel. Quote, If you could have heaven with no sickness, with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw and all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters, could you be satisfied with heaven if Christ were not there? I can't. I can't imagine it. I'd wonder where He is. After all I've learned about Him, I want to see Jesus. I want to be in His presence. I don't want all of that and no Christ. Christ is heaven to me. He has become my salvation. Very personal, verse 1 and 2. Is He your salvation? Heaven is heaven precisely because Christ is there. Hell is hell precisely because He's not there, not in that way. 
He's there in wrath. But He's not there. He has become our salvation. Now, that's all individual, personal. But He's not going to leave it there. Isaiah then moves to the corporate experience. You don't see it in the English because we just have one word, you, for both singular and plural. But the rest of the, uh, the hymn of praise is plural. It's got to do with all of you folks. I, I can't say all y'all with the joy of a, of a native speaker of Southern English. I can't do it. But you know what I mean, okay? All y'all. Mike Waters has been training me in that. I still can't quite do it the way I need to. But this is corporate salvation. Our joyful satisfaction in God. Verse 3 is plural. With joy, all of you will draw water from the wells of salvation. Oh, what a sweet verse that is. Something shared. He's addressing the whole community of believers and he's giving an image of deep satisfaction. In the ancient Near East, you know, the Middle East, it's very dry there. And they understand very well the, the value of water. Water is life. Wells are life. To draw water from a healthy, clean well, that is life. Wars are fought over those wells by nomadic tribes. They dig the wells and that's theirs and they'll fight for it. Image here then is finding an endless source of cool, refreshing water from which you can drink whenever you're thirsty. As Jesus said to the Samaritan woman at the well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You can drink from it anytime you want. With joy, you're going to draw buckets of water from the wells of salvation. You're going to drink abundance in God's household and you will be deeply and richly satisfied and you're not going to be alone. You're going to be looking around and there's going to be this countless multitude from every tribe and language and people and nation. They're going to be drinking too and they're going to be satisfied too and they're going to be giving praise and thanks to God too with you. You're not going to be alone. Satan, he keeps lying to us about pleasure. I am the God of pleasure, he tells us. Follow me and you'll enjoy yourself. He's not the God of pleasure. He's the God of anti-pleasure. He's the God of misery and death. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. That doesn't sound like pleasure to me. I have come. They might have life and have it abundantly. I want to give you abundant life. I want you to, to know the joy that comes from being in a right relationship with Almighty God. With joy you will draw water from the well of salvation. Heaven is a place of eternal pleasure. Psalm 1611. You have made known to me the path of life. His name is Jesus, by the way. You have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence with eternal pleasures at your right hand. And so we're going to be drinking from the river of the water of life flowing clear as crystal down the center of the city. Coming right from the throne. It's coming right from the throne. And on each side of the river there's going to be the tree of life. With crops every month and the leaves of the tree for the healing of the nations. It's going to be a rich, full experience. And we're going to be there with people from all over the world. So that leaves us, thirdly, with our universal mission. And that is to magnify the greatness of God. This is for all of us as well. In that day, you will say, Give thanks to the Lord. Call on His name. Make known among the nations what He has done. And proclaim that His name is exalted. Sing to the Lord, for He has done glorious things. Let this be known to all the world. Shout aloud and sing for joy, people of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel among you. This is missions, friends. This is evangelism. This is sharing the gospel with people who don't know your joy. And, and more than that, this is missions and evangelism done as worship. 
You're just overflowing with joy. You're just happy in Jesus. And you're making known among the nations what he has done. All of his great works of redemptive history. What he did with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. What he did with the Jews and how he led them out of Egypt by a mighty hand and outstretched arm. And all the plagues and, and, and the, the water walling up on the right and the left. And, and then what he did through the history of Israel and the Jews through King David and all of the kings that followed. And God's patience in dealing with sin. And then how in the fullness of time he sent his only begotten son, born of a virgin. And how Jesus lived a sinless life. And did great miracles. You can tell lost people these miracles. They'll be interested. If they get past the initial weirdness factor of talking to you, a total stranger, about spiritual things, they'll actually want to hear more about Jesus' miracles. Tell them. Tell them your favorite miracle. If you don't have one, get one. All right? Resurrection of Lazarus will do just fine. Four days dead. Lazarus come forth. I tried that with someone once. They said if they'd been there, they'd been running away screaming. All right, so that didn't work too well. But, you know, I said, look, to me, I think it's a happy thing that Lazarus came back to life. They were thinking like a zombie movie or something like that. I said, no, it's a resurrection. He's, he's alive. He's healthy. They had a feast and celebrated. But, but just we get to proclaim the greatness of God and all the great things he did and how Jesus himself was dead. And on the third day, God raised him from the dead and how he has spoken based on that some promises. Because I live, you also will live. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That's what we get to say. We get to proclaim that his name is exalted. We get to say that great is the Holy One of Israel among us. And proclaim these great things. I think, listen, if you think about missions and evangelism this way, you'll lose your fear. Because you can just have an awesome time of worship whether the non-Christian joins you or not. Oh, but I hope they do. I hope you're with me, you can say. That you can spend eternity praising a God like this. Repent and believe the gospel that your sins can be forgiven. Proclaim that His name is exalted. And so we're involved in missions. And why? Because there's going to be a, a multitude greater than any we can count from every tribe and language and people and nation. It's our job to tell them. To go out and to proclaim this to people who have never heard of his name. And to sing among them. I know some of you think singing is weird. Maybe it's not your favorite thing. I've talked to you. Some of you think, ah, it's not great on singing. You will be. You will be. Because it says in the book of Revelation, you're going to sing a new song. Music, when done well, just resonates spiritually inside your hearts. It just does. I just love good worship, don't you? Just love to sing praise songs. There's a kind of music that's reserved for heaven. None of us has heard it yet. It's called a new song. We will resonate with it in our resurrected bodies and minds. And we will love it and we will sing to it. And we're going to be joining Jesus who sings. He does. It says here right in Hebrews 2.12, Christ says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. Now there's some special music I'd like to hear. Jesus singing in the assembly. The praises of Almighty God. But God himself singing, Zephaniah 3.17, The Lord your God is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. In the Chronicles of Narnia, C.S. Lewis said it was by song that Aslan created the world. And the magician's nephew, when Diggory and Polly and the rest go into Narnia for the first time, they find it a void. And then a voice, later revealed to be Aslan, representing Christ, sings the new world into existence... It's by singing he creates. 
Perhaps by metaphor, by singing, he will create the new heavens and the new earth as well. And we'll hear that song and we'll join in singing it. Application. Do you praise God like this? Six verses. Memorize them. (laughs) They're rich. Just set them in front of you and say, with joy, I'm going to draw water from the wells of salvation. For great is the Holy One of Israel among us. These are great words. (laughs) Do you praise God like this? You know, right from the beginning it says, in that day you will say, I will praise you, O Lord. Now stop there. It's just a way of thinking. I will praise you today. That sounds like an act of my will. Well, that's about what it is. You have to determine you're going to praise Him today. You're going to rejoice in the Lord today. I know some of your hearts are breaking. I know you're struggling with sin. You may have come here today feeling defiled and guilty because of sin. Your heart may be breaking for other reasons. You may be going through trials. There might be sickness, death hanging over a loved one, or maybe even over you. You may be facing economic difficulties. You may have lost your job and you haven't been able to find another job. There may be any one of a number of things causing you misery today. I will praise you, O Lord. Although you are angry with me, your anger has turned away and you have comforted me. Can you say that? Will you praise him? It's a choice you make, really. It really is a decision as a Christian that you make by the power of the Spirit. I'm going to praise him. And and Spirit, pass me things all day long that I can praise God for. And he'll do it. I guess, finally, are you involved in the mission? Are you involved in evangelism? Have you shared the gospel with anyone? Have you proclaimed among the nations that his name is exalted? That's what it says that we're to do. Find somebody whose spiritual situation you're unsure about and just praise God in front of them. I would urge you to get into the conversation first. They might have you arrested as somebody insane or something like that. But just get into the conversation and then just talk about the greatness of God, of Christ. You might find it the greatest witnessing opportunity you've ever had. But it's our responsibility and joy and privilege to proclaim among the nations that his name is exalted. One final thing is be praying for our friends that are serving the Lord, doing precisely that right now. We can join them in their work by praying for them. Pray for the trip that's out there in East Asia and for the friends that are hosting them and that live there all the time. Pray for that work and close with me in prayer. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.